there's a phrase that I hear uh, more than you might expect, certainly more than I ever expected as a pastor. And it's a phrase that, that I have used myself, so it's not that I am above it or haven't struggled with it. And it's this phrase, I don't feel good at prayer. I think the surprising thing for a lot of us is, is that we're not the only people who've ever struggled with prayer. Now, what's fascinating is that the, the research tells us that in a given year, the vast majority of people in America, now I'm not saying people of faith, just, just, just people, will pray. Now, especially the last few years, that number has, has risen. But at the same time, while we see so many people who at some point pray, there's this pervasive insecurity when it comes to prayer. Now, sometimes that insecurity shows up when we're in groups. And I know this, I joked about this last week, that I become the designated prayer in public settings. My wife kind of has fun with this because she makes, she makes me pray. I'm like, you can talk to Jesus too. Like, you know him. And so for many of us, when it comes to that public gathering, maybe it's your small group or maybe it's a barbecue and it's going to pray. Everybody kind of just is like looking down like this. Don't make eye contact. We don't feel comfortable praying in public. For some of us, it's time. You know, there's that one person in your family that you never allow to pray on Thanksgiving because you know that you will eat a very cold turkey if they pray. Some of us feel like I just don't pray long enough. Others of us, we go, man, other people, when they pray, they just, they move people. People are stirred. People are inspired. Like my prayers don't even inspire me, much less anybody else. And then there's just, I think, the part of prayer that if we can be honest at this moment, prayer is, is a struggle when you're exhausted. Prayer is a struggle when you're struggling with what do I actually believe about God. Prayer is a struggle with, I'm not sure he really is hearing me. I know I had one friend who for a long time said, Scott, I don't understand why I should pray. He's God. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to do what he's going to do. How does my prayer change anything? And in that place, it's a, a struggle to pray. And so I just wanted this morning to just invite you into this conversation about prayer and, and let you know this is not a place nor is this a series for people who are perfect at prayer. I'm certainly not somebody who feels like he has a PhD at prayer. There's a lot of things in my faith that I feel like I do way better than prayer. But I know many of us at some point have said to ourselves, I'd like to get good at this. I don't feel good at prayer, but, but I want to get good at prayer. I'd like to be better than I am. And so you may be surprised if you've ever felt this or that's where you are with what I'm going to say next, with what I'm going to share is the big idea. This is maybe a surprising big idea. But the big idea today is this. The purpose of prayer is actually not to get good at prayer. The purpose of prayer is not to get good at prayer. I know that's a little bit of a weird linguistic thing. I fought with my team for that language this week. Get good. Scott, that doesn't sound right. But it sticks in your head. That's why I chose it that way. But I think a lot of us, we think, you know what? I don't feel good that I'm good at prayer. And I want to get good at prayer. But, but I just want to encourage you. Sometimes we make our goal the wrong thing. And if you've ever accomplished a goal that wasn't actually a worthy goal of pursuing, you know how frustrating it can be to go after something and then get there and go, man, this wasn't really worth pursuing. 
And, and the reason why the purpose of prayer is not to get good at prayer is that prayer isn't the end goal. It's the means to the end goal. And we're going to see this today in the book of Luke. So if you brought your Bible this morning, I'm so glad you did. And if you're not in the habit of bringing your Bible to church, if I could just nudge you a little bit, please do. But we're going to be in the book of Luke chapter 18. If you have a Bible and you're new to the Bible, just open it to the front. There's an index. There's two sections, Old Testament, New Testament. Luke is in the New Testament. And, and, and I wasn't planning, just a little bit of confession here, I wasn't planning to teach on prayer this fall. When I went on my sabbatical, I had a different plan. But I'm grateful we had this season when I came back about the movies because I got a chance to kind of get used to everything again and, and even pray through where we should go next. And so I pivoted into this series. And, and part of the reason why I pivoted is that I spent a, a lot of time this summer on my sabbatical walking. And I would get up in the morning early while it was still cool, kind of, um, and I'd go out for a walk and I would listen to the Gospels. I'd listen to two or three chapters while I walked. And then the rest of my walk, I just would think about what I listened to. And this passage was one that I listened to that just, it just stuck with me. And so the day that I listened to it, I spent the whole rest of the time walking going, man, I, I think God has something for me here. I think he has something for us here. And so what we're going to see in Luke 18 today is what's called a parable. Now a parable is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. So anytime anybody in, in any literary or oratory setting uses a parable in their writing or their speech, this is what a parable is. This, this is the dictionary definition, Merriam-Webster, right here. A parable is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. But Jesus was incredibly fond of parables and he used them often and he used them for a very specific purpose. Jesus told parables to reveal the truth to those who were seeking the truth while hiding the truth from those who were opposed to it. And so I'm not sure if you knew this, but not everybody's open to the truth. And Jesus knew this. He would often say, let him who has ears, let him hear. And you and I know this in our own lives. Sometimes people are just closed off. You could bring them all the evidence in the world of the truth about something, but they're just not going to hear it. And so Jesus knew this for his audience. And so he told parables so those who were actually open and seeking would get it. And that way, those who weren't actually open would miss it. And we're going to see this in this parable that he tells today. So with that background... I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as we read God's word. If you don't have a Bible, Jacob will keep you moving here on the screen. Beginning in verse 9, this is what it says. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. Now I'm going to add a little bit of Scott here. This is not in the Bible. This is just Scott's voice. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven. But he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus, I pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would be the people who actually are hungry and searching for the truth. And for those who are here who aren't open, Jesus, I pray that you would do a work in their heart that my words and and my will can't, that you'd break them open to receive what you have for them. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. The, The text in Luke 18 tells us that these two men, a tax collector and a Pharisee, went up to the temple to pray. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was the the center point of worship. In that day, you had to go to a specific place to pray. And that was the temple. And there was an outer court that they probably were in. And then there was an inner court. And then there was a holy of holies where only the priest went one day a year. And this outer ring is known as Solomon's Colonnade. It's the area the early church would begin to gather after Jesus was resurrected and returned to heaven. And so these two people went to this place to pray. They, They went to a holy place to do something holy. And we watched them, and the Pharisee was obviously comfortable giving his prayer in public. He wasn't shy. He wasn't hiding in the shadows. He gets up, and he starts praying. But what we see here with this Pharisee and the way that he prays, I love what Luke writes. He began to pray about himself. Just an FYI, just kind of as we're getting started about prayer, if your prayer is about you and about God, maybe you should just reverse the order there. But what we see here with this Pharisee is that he was good at prayer, but he wasn't good with God. He was comfortable praying in public. He had no problem with people being around when he prayed. But his prayer actually reflects the fact that he was good at prayer, but he was not actually good and reconciled and aligned with God. And this is why I said the purpose of prayer is not to get good at prayer. Because if you just feel comfortable praying in public, what you may find is that you're comfortable doing something that God is not actually receiving and honoring. And the reason why the Pharisee was good at prayer but not good with God is that the Pharisee measured himself against other people and he became proud. And in the text, you see, he's spending his time praying about himself, and then he's basically letting God know all the people that he's better than, all the people that he's not like. And whenever we compare ourselves with other people, the two things that are likely to happen are either pride because we feel above other people or insecurity because we feel less than other people. Comparison doesn't lead us to recognize ourselves as God sees us. It leads us into a sinful and wrong view of ourselves. And so the, the Pharisee is, is not even measuring himself against God. He's not even talking about God. He's talking about himself and talking about others. Which is why the prayer of the tax collector is so starkly different. It says the tax collector, he wouldn't even raise his eyes. You ever been in a place where somebody just, they won't even look at you. They're just, they're so overwhelmed. They're so broken. They're so ashamed. He won't even look up. And the text says that he prayed a seven word prayer. God, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax collector measured himself against God. And as a result, he became humble. Huge contrast to the Pharisee who measured himself against people and became proud. This seven-sentence prayer, just a reminder, your prayer doesn't have to be long. Sorry, seven words. Seven words that showed that he actually understood the God he was praying to and the person that he was. He understood what prayer was for. Later on, we'll see Jesus talk about prayer. And he says, while all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 20, beware of the scribes, a group that was like the Pharisees, who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at banquets. Jesus said, the scribes devour widows' houses and they say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. So I I just want to encourage you today, maybe because you feel insecure around prayer, that, that praying long prayers doesn't just check the box for God. Often, sometimes, it actually does the opposite. And feeling comfortable praying in public doesn't always check the box either, because sometimes it reveals the, the pride and arrogance in our heart. So you might be saying, Scott, if the purpose of prayer is not to get good at prayer, well, then what is the purpose? Well, I think I could spend the rest of my life trying to answer that question and actually get to the bottom of it. Because prayer is a topic that seems to me to be um, unfathomable. Uh, We're going to spend a few weeks on it, but I'm not going to say everything there is to be said. But what I want to do today is, is there's three invitations that I think this text shows us that prayer offers us. Three things that prayer invites us to, and they're the only invitations. So if you find me in the lobby and say, Scott, what about this? Yes, I'm not trying to say everything in one sermon. But these three invitations are things that God's been working on me with as I've been spending time meditating on this text. And I, I, hope, they, I hope they get us started on this journey today because the title of this message is, Why Do We Pray? So before we get to how, which is where we almost always start, we're starting with why. And the first invitation we have, if you're taking notes, is that prayer invites us to humility. Prayer invites us to humility. Humility is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's not one of the nine listed in Galatians 5. But I think it may be the essential mark that we are becoming more like Jesus. The early church sang a hymn. Not that different from the songs we sang. And their hymn began, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, before it was in your Bible, it was in their hymn book. Because they saw the humility of Jesus and they began to live that out. And we see this in Luke 18, if your Bible's still open. It says, but the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. And he kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's been humbled. He recognizes his true state. He's not arrogant like the Pharisee. And comparing himself to people who don't have what he has, he recognizes his sinfulness and his brokenness. And this is why later on in the next verse, Jesus says, this one, the tax collector, went down to his house. He left the temple and went home justified, right with God, good with God. How? 
Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. That's the Pharisee. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the tax collector. And, and so when we stand in a moment to pray, whether it's like this and I have lights on me and I'm being streamed on the internet for permanent posterity, or when you're out in your car, or you're out walking in the forest, or when you're laying in bed at night, it may not feel like you have a spotlight on you, but you have the attention of the God of the universe. You have the most important light on you. And as I was reading and listening to this text throughout the summer and, and meditating on it, I just, I just was impressed by this thought that you can't stand in prayer and actually converse with God while holding on to pride. It, it, if you're standing or sitting or walking, if you're in front of people or by yourself and you're praying and you're trying to have a conversation with God, which is essentially what prayer is. It's a dialogue with God. It's not a monologue. Eventually you have to be quiet and let him get a word in edgewise. And sometimes you have to actually speak instead of just listening. But if you're in that conversation with God and you're holding on to pride, that pride will actually shut down the conversation. It'll shut down the, the dialogue with God because you'll either stop praying with God or you'll begin a monologue with God. Like this man did, the, the Pharisee, where he's talking about himself and he's talking about others. And, and if you have pride, I've seen this happen again and again in the life of people who follow Jesus. Pride leads us to self-dependence, not dependence on God. That's why so often the times in your life when you are the most successful, you are the most inconsistent in your relationship with God. Inconsistent in prayer, inconsistent here, inconsistent in the scriptures until something falls apart. And then that need, that crisis drives you back into dependency. And so often our prayers become monologues with God because we're praying out of pride not out of humility. And what humility does is humility can be uncomfortable, but, but so can prayer too. I don't know anybody who says, man, humility is the most comfortable place to be when you're actively being humbled. I love what one pastor said. He said, God's plan A is for us to humble ourselves. God plan, God's plan B is to humble us. You always want plan A. And that's where this text began to speak to me because I've shared with you before that I have this on-again, off-again relationship with anxiety in my life. It began when I first moved here and I had three weeks of nightly panic attacks. And anxiety never sends me a calendar invite. It never tells me it's going to show up. It just shows up. And when I'm in the middle of my anxiety flaring up and I'm wondering, hey, is this going to lead to a full-on panic attack? I don't have a whole lot of mental space to give a really long prayer. I, my prayers do not become very flowery. They don't become very beautiful. I have to rely on things I already know in my head. And so over the last few years, when my anxiety has flared up, my most common prayer has been those seven words from Luke 18. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And I will say that prayer, I've said it some nights hundreds of times. 
because I know that I am powerless over what's going on in my body. I didn't make it start and I can't make it stop. I'm completely dependent on him. And that humility is really uncomfortable. I like to be in control. I like to be in charge. I like to have the power. But, but what prayer does is it invites me to humility and I realize how little control I have. And that prayer moment becomes uncomfortable, but it becomes the only thing that I can do. And so I turn myself over to the God that loves me, that is in charge. And I say, God, have mercy on me. And so first and foremost, prayer invites us to humility. And then to be frank, that's why a lot of us don't like it. Because humility is uncomfortable. The second thing prayer invites us to is intimacy with God. Prayer invites us into intimacy with God. This tax collector, when he stands up to pray, he speaks this very short prayer, but it, it reflects the fact that he actually knows God because he knows himself. I'm not sure if you know this, but the deeper you get to know God, the more deeply you get to know yourself. John Calvin began his, his famous institutes with there is no knowledge of God without knowledge of self, and there is no knowledge of self without knowledge of God. They're connected. The more you get to know God, the more God will reveal yourself to you. And the more you get to know who you are, the more it will reveal to you how different God is than you. And, and this technical has this very familiar conversation with God because he knows who God is and he knows who he is. This Pharisee doesn't even mention an actual awareness of God. What he does mention is his own arrogance and comparison with other people. And we see that Jesus had this same kind of conversation and relationship and intimacy with God, so much so that when he taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, he said, therefore, you should pray like this, our Father. Father is relational. Father is intimate. Father is personal. Yes, he goes on to say, your name be honored as holy. Many of us learned that phrase in the King James, hallowed be your name. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is different. Yes, God is beyond us, but he wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to be personally, intimately connected to us. Father is the term that communicates that. And what Jesus does is not only does he model that for us, but he calls us into that intimacy with our father, the same father that we share with him. And we see this in his most painful hour in Luke 22, we see that Jesus withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And you know, some of you know the rest of the story. An angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him and being in anguish, Jesus prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Modern science now tells us that Jesus was probably experiencing something we would call stress or a panic attack. That the capillaries in his forehead burst and they mixed with his sweat glands and literally sweaty blood began to fall from his forehead. And that moment of struggle going to the cross was a moment he had in a conversation intimately with his father. It wasn't dear Lord, most holy God. It was father. 
It was an intimate conversation. And so I just want you to think about for a second with the relationships in your life, with the people you care about, how do you grow intimacy with people? I mean, just think about it for a second. This is rhetorical, but I mean, with the people that you've gotten to know well, that you feel close to, how has that happened? Time. You don't get to intimacy quickly. And if you do, it's a sign of a problem. When I was in college, I'd have friends. Man, I stayed up with this girl all night long for eight hours talking at Denny's. We shared our whole story. And I was like, stop. That's too much vulnerability too fast. But yes, time, vulnerability, experience, all of those begin to build intimacy. And the same thing happens with God. So if you want to be closer to God, if, if you want to know him better, which is part of that end that prayer is leading us towards, you got to spend time with him. You got to be honest and transparent with him. And you got to start going through some experiences with him. Man, the people who I'm around who pray with that level of intimacy with God, they've been through some stuff with God. People who've lost a child or a career, who filed bankruptcy, who've looked down the desk from their doctor and heard the word cancer, they pray different because there's intimacy there with God. Time, vulnerability, experience. Let me remind you of something. I'm a big delegator. I aspire to be a better delegator. But you can't delegate someone to do intimacy for you. We love delegation in our world. You just type in to Google the word delegate. You'll see millions of hits. You can delegate a lot of things. You can delegate somebody to walk around fries and grab your tomatoes and your pancake mix and your soda. You can delegate somebody to run around an Amazon warehouse and get all your stuff for you and bring it to your front door. You can delegate somebody to do your taxes and manage your retirement portfolio, but you cannot delegate intimacy to somebody. If you tell your spouse, hey, I've hired a personal assistant and they're going to handle intimacy with you from now on. <laughs> it doesn't work. And you can't delegate your intimacy with God to me. You can't delegate your intimacy with God to your small group leader or to your friend. No one can do intimacy but you. And so prayer is this invitation for you and God to begin building that intimacy together. The third invitation is this. Prayer invites conviction about our sin and God's righteousness. When you're in dialogue with the God of the universe, eventually that dialogue is going to reveal to you what in you is unlike him, is not aligned with him, is not who he is. And that's what we see again in Luke 18. The two men went up to the temple, which was the place where you engage God's presence to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. They went to this moment to step into God's presence. One experienced conviction about his sin and his unrighteousness. And the other one went and left feeling better about himself. Feeling more proud. Feeling more arrogant. 
One of the things that happens is when you're praying, God reveals himself to you. God reveals to you who he is. And the more and more you learn about who God is, the more and more you become convicted of all the things in you that are not aligned with him. And that experience of God revealing things that are not aligned to him, we use this big word called conviction. Now, we experience conviction a lot. We just don't typically call it by that. It happens with all of your friends and all of my friends. We all have friends that are really good at things that we are not good at. For example, you probably have somebody in your life who's really dedicated to their physical fitness. How do you know? Because they tell you about going to CrossFit every day. <laughs> That's always the joke. How do you know if someone does CrossFit? You don't need to worry about it. They'll tell you. And so you have those people that are just, they're dedicated to their fitness. And you go, wow, I, I can't like imagine that level of commitment to taking care of your body. Some of us have those friends that are so committed to their diet. Like they bring their own food to every event. No, it's okay. I'm not eating your food. I eat my food because it's healthier, you know? Okay. You know, like, so you have those friends. You have those friends that are so fastidious with their finances, I mean, they just are disciplined. They never stop and make impulse buys at the store. You know, like they never go and get anything they want to get. You know, it's only the things they've budgeted. They have their cash envelopes for everything, you know. And, And then you have the people you're around and they're just like amazing parents. They never lose their temper. Their children are perfect. You're like, man, it must be nice to be you. But, but something happens when you get around those people who are good at what you're not good at is that sometimes you feel conviction. You know what? I'd like to get better at that. I'd like to be more intentional that I'd like to be more confident at that. And we have to be really careful that we don't get conviction mixed up with condemnation. Because for many of us, what happens is that we've had really destructive voices in our past that somehow we've projected onto God. And for a lot of us, God's voice in our life sounds a lot like the abusive parent we had. God's voice in our life sounds like that that screaming preacher that we grew up under. God's voice in our life sounds like that voice in our head that's a, a condemning inner voice. And sometimes I get excited. My wife said I yelled too much last week because I was my first Sunday back. She said, you, you yelled a lot. Uh, I just, it was excitement. It wasn't yelling. Um, but, but I just want to encourage you that there's a difference between God's voice and the voice of your shame. And what is that difference? Well, when you hear God's voice, God's voice stills you and it leads you and it reassures you. And it enlightens you and it encourages you and it comforts you and it calms you and it convicts you. God's voice will at times tell you what you don't want to hear. If God's voice always tells you what you want to hear, you can know you're not always listening to God's voice. Because God doesn't always agree with you. Because if God always agrees with you, God's voice is your voice. But there's a difference between God's voice and the voice of your shame. What happens when you feel that shame and condemnation, that rushes you, pushes you, frightens you, confuses you, discourages you, worries you, obsesses you, and condemns you. And that isn't the voice of God. That's the voice of our enemy. 
At the end of Romans 7, we hear Paul say that what he wants to do, he doesn't do. And what he doesn't want to do, he does. And he says, what, what wretched man that I am, who will save me from this struggle? And then just a few words later, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're like, Scott, I'm not good at prayer. God's been convicting me of my sin. Yeah, that's what God's voice does. But if you're feeling worthless, like God should give up on you and throw you away, that's your shame. That's the voice of our enemy, who Revelation 12 says lives to accuse the brethren. And so today as we start, I just wanted to remind you that the purpose of prayer isn't to get good at prayer. It's so much bigger than that. And next week when we come back together, we're going to dive into how Jesus taught us to pray. But before we get to how, I wanted you to have a vision for why. What God has given us prayer to do in our lives. Before we close, I got a couple next steps for you this morning on the back of your handout. And the first one is this. I want to invite you to repent in the areas where God is humbling you and convicting you. That six-letter word, repent, there is a word that I know has baggage. But, but we've said as a church that, that we want to make it part of our work to make repentance normal. That word should not be owned by angry people with a bullhorn on the side of the road. It should be my word. It should be your word. Because you're not God. Which means there's things in your life that aren't aligned with him. And repentance is simply going, you know what, God, I'm not you. There's some stuff in my life that doesn't honor you. There's some areas I'm going in the wrong direction. And I recognize that and help me, God, to go in the right direction. So that should be a regular occurrence in your life. So, so when you pray and God humbles and convicts you, begin repenting and turning from those things. Number two, I want to invite you to make a plan to pray daily starting this week. This series is not called prayer. It's called pray. Because my goal isn't that you walk away and go, man, Scott gave me all of these things to think about with prayer. If I did that, I failed. I don't want you to have more knowledge about prayer. I want you to pray. And I love what Kevin Queen says. He says, when it comes to prayer, you need to have three things in your plan. You need to have a when. So pick your time. When are you going to pray this week? This is rhetorical, but it's not optional. When are you going to pray? If you're a morning person, do it in the morning. If you're a night person, don't pick 5 a.m. There's no verse in the Bible that says you have to pray before the sun gets up. Where are you going to pray? Pick a place. What's so funny is that, that our brains work that when we step into places that we've decided are for certain things, it just naturally begins to happen. And then how? Pick a method. If you're the kind of person who always falls asleep praying, don't keep praying in your bed. <laughs> Go for a walk. Sleep is less likely there. This is just simple stuff here. Like I'm not, I'm not like the PhD in prayer. I'm just giving you the simple things I've learned. So pick a place, pick a time, pick a method. I didn't say that it had to be 20 minutes either. And so some of you are like, Scott, this feels really structured. I don't really like that. Well, you have to start with structure. 
And developing these habits isn't going to happen overnight. And if you're like, Scott, I don't really like structure. Well, guess what? I prefer structure to nothing. So would you rather be uncomfortable and doing it or not doing it at all? And then last thing, put your plan into action this week. A lot of us have been taught or told that we had to pray at, pray at certain times or in certain ways or pray like certain people. I always hear the verse as a pastor that Luther said, as a pastor, I, you know, I can't do anything to, for God if I don't pray for two hours every morning. I guess I've wasted my first 17 years of ministry then. And I love what Dom John Chapman says, pray as you can, not as you can't. Scott, I can't pray for a long time. I can't pray for 20 minutes. I can't pray early in the morning. Well, then pray as you can't, not as you can't. Start with a minute. Or go for a walk and just pray on your walk. Or decide you're going to pray while you drive so you don't cuss out other drivers. Pray as you can, not as you can't. And watch God meet you in that. And watch what you can do in the hands of him grow. Would you pray with me this morning? I encourage you just to take what you have on your lap and set it down. Put down your phone and your cup and just come to a place of, of stillness and quiet this morning. I prayed at the beginning of our time together that we would have ears to hear that we'd be people who would receive the parable Jesus is telling and, and understand it and embrace what it has for us. And so this morning, I, I wonder just for a second, just between you and God, what is it that God has revealed to you today? Maybe it's lots of things, but what's that one thing with that one thing in the front of your mind, I, I wonder if you might ask Jesus what it is that he wants you to do next with what he's shown you today. I wonder what kind of emotions that step of obedience brings up for you. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's insecurity, maybe it's past failures at doing that thing. I wonder if you might begin to have a conversation with Jesus about those things. This is what I heard, Jesus. This is what I sense you want me to do, but here's where I'm struggling. Tell him, honestly, vulnerably. Jesus, I pray for my friends this morning that we wouldn't just be people who learn more about prayer or who aspire at getting good at prayer, but that you would develop within us a hunger, a fire, a drive, a desperation 
to become more like you, to be closer to you, to do what you would do if you were us. I know a lot of us have baggage with prayer. Some of us have insecurity with prayer. Some of us feel like total beginners with prayer. But you tell us in your word that your power is made perfect in weakness and that your grace is sufficient in our struggle. So I pray that my friends today would experience that. And I pray this week as they pray, praying as they can, not as they can't, that they'd experience you. Not just a booming light from heaven or some massive revelation, but they would see little glimpses and reminders that you're with them, that you're listening. And if they'll be quiet long enough that you're speaking to. We pray that we would become people who don't just talk about prayer that we be people who pray because we want to be people who look like you and act like you and love like you. Thanks for hearing our prayers this morning, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.